The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi reveals how the world really works. And, of course, male-female attraction is obviously an intrinsic part of the way that world really works. And so uh, we're going to talk about something which is uh, a little bit awkward, and anyone who's had to discuss it with their teenage children or yeah, pre-teenage children maybe uh, knows exactly how awkward this can be. And uh, it's, it's not entirely um, comfortable and easygoing to discuss it on the air either, just because I prefer in general... Uh, for this show to be something that that anyone can listen to and their children can listen to and and this topic is one that uh, definitely requires parents to make the decision as to whether you do want um, any young people listening to this or not uh, we um, we go back to 92 Bill Clinton just wins the uh, election in 1992, November 92, he takes office in January 93, and soon after that, he appoints as his Surgeon General a woman named Jocelyn Elders. Look, uh, she's a controversial personality. I don't think she has a firm cultural rooting in, uh, if you like, American values, because she almost seemed to delight in tossing grenades. Uh, it's, it's a woman with an obviously uh, complex background. Her son was uh, convicted of selling cocaine. Uh, she claimed that it was a setup in order to embarrass her, but it did go to appeal, and the appeal court found no um, uh, basis at all on uh, for, for, for saying that it was a setup, and her son... Um, was made to serve out his full, I think it was a 10-year sentence. And so, you know, tough. Uh, 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 she herself spoke in terms of legalizing drugs, but the reason that Bill Clinton fired her at the end of 94, she served about a year and a half, close to a year and a half. The reason he fired her um, was when she started talking about masturbation uh, should be taught in schools for various reasons she came up with. And at that point, uh, Bill Clinton um, decided that it was enough, and at the, at the then chief of staff at the White House was a guy called Leon Panetta, you might remember, and Leon Panetta uh, said, there have been too many areas where the president disagrees with her views, this is just one too many, goodbye, Jocelyn Elders. And off she went. Um, that that really is is the topic. Um, I've received so many inquiries, so many letters, and our website is rabbidaniellappin.com. There's a place there for contacting us, and that's where uh, most of the letters we get come. And uh, I received many letters. The majority of them were from parents asking about how to tackle the subject of masturbation with, with their young children, or with their children, or with their young people. Uh, some of them have, have come from adults, predominantly men, 
I, actually, I'm going to say only men in terms of the letters I've received, uh, men who, um, who are asking about it as well in the whole context of uh, internet pornography and all the other challenges that uh, men face today in trying to remain faithful to their marriages. And so uh, the, the, the topic I'm going to treat at the moment from the point of view of um, talking to your children, okay? Obviously an awkward topic. When do you bring it up? How do you bring it up? Uh, what, how do you ever get anything like a good outcome? And in any event, what are you going to say anyway? Uh, th there's a whole range. Even uh, people I think as highly of as James Dobson, who founded Focus on the Family, uh, did a uh, years ago spoke about masturbation, and uh, I, I can't say I really agreed entirely with uh, with his approach at all, which was basically that his dad had said to him, "Listen, you know, not the worst thing in the world. God doesn't really care about it one way or the other." And uh, and uh, and look, it, it is an approach, and uh, and I certainly am not going to uh, knock Dr. Dobson. Many many people have done well. Um, through their connections with Focus on the Family and his ministry activities, but uh, I didn't agree with that. And, and, and it goes all the way um, to uh, uh, what is kind of almost the official position. It's, it's what's taught to children. If you have your child at a GIC, uh, newcomers, there would be a government indoctrination camp uh, formerly known as a public school. If you have your children at a GIC, uh, they are being told that uh, there's no there's no moral issue, there's no religious issue. It is, uh, it is there, there's no biological harm, there's no medical harm, and uh, it's perfectly normal, perfectly healthy. Everybody does it. Okay, uh, okay. Then uh, at the dark end of the spectrum. Uh, you've got the superstitious things, and I don't think there's a whole lot of that anymore. But, you know, years and years ago, there was a time that uh, uh, boys were told uh, by various uh, authority figures in their lives, uh, you know, that uh, the various bizarre side effects that can flow from this, none of which are true, of course. And uh, there it is. It's a, it's a topic that is, is awkward and tough. And uh, it just so happens that over the last uh, month or two, we've received a number of letters with this question, particularly in the context of, uh, say, how do we talk to our children? What do we do with our children about this? Uh, and I just, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to dodge the question. It was not a question I relished tackling, uh, but I felt that uh, it was probably something I should touch on, even if I do not give a complete and comprehensive uh, picture on it, at least from the point of view of ancient Jewish wisdom, I thought that I probably do need to touch upon it. And so, uh, look, I'm going to say at the outset that it is much harder to raise wholesome children today than it was 30 years ago. It's a whole lot harder to raise wholesome children today than it was 50 years ago. And uh, we, we have to acknowledge that fact. It is very challenging indeed. First of all, uh, a socialist-leaning uh, economy and government for the last 50 years has been incredibly successful in moving more and more mothers 
out of direct contact with their children and into the workplace. Wonderful, good, everyone should be able to do whatever they want, but we should also not pretend that uh, social pressures and economic pressures play no role and that women just calmly do exactly what they want to do. No, women cannot do exactly what they want to do. Uh, when women are ridiculed in, by the popular culture for being at home with their children, when uh, women are subjected to incredible economic pressures, uh, families are, uh, due to um, ever raising taxes, then we, you know, we understand. Yeah, there are uh, there are many circumstances in which women are not home. That means children are very often uh, in the care at best of a caregiver, some kind of professional caregiver. At worst, uh, they they sort of hang out at school and with some kind of after school activity until one or the other parent picks them up on look it's rough it's very very difficult there's no question about it but it does mean that the less time spent with a parent the less opportunity for wholesome input into the spiritual and moral and physical development of the child uh, this is all just a reality it is very tough indeed and so uh, if you happen to be a parent wondering about whether to bring this up with your children or to just leave it alone. Uh, the, the answer is not absolute. In other words, I think that there are some children that uh, you would want to bring it up with. There are other children you may decide best to just leave well alone, right? It depends. But there's no doubt that to some extent, the question of whether you should bring up masturbation with your children is colored by the intense awkwardness you feel. You dread the prospect of doing this, and uh, that dread tends to make you, it, it tends to color your viewpoint as to whether it's a good idea or not. And so we will find ourselves tending towards saying, hey, you know what, let's just leave them, let's not raise it, let's not discuss it at all, just because the prospect of this discussion is so painful that you anything that would either postpone it or eliminate it, make it entirely unnecessary, would be the best thing of all. I totally understand that. I really do get that. That's not a not a question at all. Uh, so I will give you if if you are tending towards thinking you ought to maybe yes, but you have no idea how to bring this, bring this up. How are you going to start the conversation? How are you going to avoid it being the most embarrassing thing in the whole world that you've ever had? Uh, I have some thoughts for you. Just as soon as we come back, the resource that uh, we've prepared and that uh, touches uh, peripherally on this idea, touch being the operative word, is um, uh, hands-off, this may be love. And uh, it's, it's a courting manual. It, uh, it describes the power of human touch between a man and a woman. And it speaks about uh, how to be aware of that and how to handle that incredible, powerful uh, force that God built into our bodies, how to handle that in a way that gives you your best shot of building a healthy marriage. Uh, you can, it's, a, it's a book, and you can download it on Amazon on your Kindle, if you like. You can get that right away. It's called Le uh, Hands Off, This May Be Love. And uh, 
Uh, it's written by a woman that uh, Susan and I commissioned to do the book called Gila Manelson, and uh, we published the book for her. Hands off, This May Be Love. You can also get it at our website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Go to rabbidaniellappin.com. Apart from anything else, uh, don't forget that's a place to ask us questions. That's a place to ask us things uh, you'd like to have us address because that's exactly how the topic of today's show came about. So quick break, and then I'm going to be right back with you. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and Retirement Curveball is a book by a finance expert that I respect, Dr. Tom McPhee. Whether you are thinking about retirement, are already retired, or have never given the big R even a thought, now is the time to welcome the contents of this book into your mind. The book is filled with compelling aha moments and will motivate you to make some highly effective changes in how you manage your money and your life. I know Dr. Tom McPhee and his terrific book, Retirement Curveball, and I do recommend it. Get the book at retirementcurveball.com or on Amazon. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. We're back, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, your rabbi, that's me, reminding you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. And something that never changes, of course, is uh, uh, male-female attraction. Something else that never changes is uh, the extent to which men are sexually driven. Uh, the fact that uh, the overwhelming bulk of the market for pornography is and always has been men, not women. It's just another way in which uh, men and women are different. Uh, the extent to which men are visually impacted and, uh, and, um, and you know, women, especially wives, sometimes get upset when they see their husbands, you know, their eyes dart around or their head spins around where, when an attractive woman walks by or don't, don't be upset by it, ladies. Um, don't be upset by it. He's with you. And he loves you, and he wants to be married to you, and none of that is in any way reduced by the fact that he sees a woman and every molecule in his body creates a, a reaction of, look, see, there it is. It's not because he is after it, it's not because he wants to go and get it, uh, but we are visually driven. We've visually impacted very powerfully. And uh, and don't don't you know my view? Don't give your husbands a rough time for noticing attractive women. After all, he noticed you first, and uh, and he is your husband, and uh, that's how he wants to stay. So that is just something, right? You don't often see women's heads jerking around when a male model walks by. I mean, some people, some women do, some people notice, but by and large, there is no comparison between uh, the swivel neck joint that men have and the perfectly normal necks that women have, which uh, brings us back to the topic, which is how on earth do you have a discussion about masturbation with your children if you decide to do it? There may be very good reasons to decide not to do it. But if you decide to do it, how do you do it and avoid the, um, the squirmy 
awkwardness that, uh, that, that you anticipate such a conversation being surrounded with? Well, the answer is very simple indeed. The answer is the Bible. Now, uh, you know, my friends, I know that uh, many of you listening to the show are Bible enthusiasts. You heard me talk recently on the show about the Bible Museum, the brand new museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Uh, I've already heard from a number of you who've gone, some of you who, uh, in response to the uh, podcast last week, made arrangements to go, which is all great. Uh, but I also know that there are among you, uh, many of you, who are not biblically inclined or biblically interested. Nonetheless, what I'm saying has enormous value for you, too. What I'm saying is that taking your 13 or 14-year-old son or 12-year-old, whatever, uh, and saying, um, hi, I'd like to have a little conversation with you about masturbation. I mean, you just know this is just no good. But if, on the other hand, uh, you say, let's sit down, I, I want to go through uh, a few different chapters of a very important book called the Bible. Now, look, if you are a parent who has already done this, if you're a parent, not the masturbation talk, but if you're a parent who regularly uh, takes a few verses of the Bible to share with the child and opens up a Bible and you sit down with your child and you point at the verse and you read it together and you analyze it and you you explain and discuss the meaning of it, then you're, you're miles ahead. You're light years ahead in this, uh, in this matter. But even if you've never done such a thing before, uh, this is still a better way of doing it. The, the Bible is a, a guide to every aspect of life, and this is no exception. Uh, masturbation was not invented by Surgeon General Jocelyn Elders in 93. It wasn't invented by the uh, sexual revolution that began in the 1960s. No, you can rest assured it's been around for a while. How far back? Well, we, uh, if I were you, I would turn to Genesis chapter 38, and there you find we're talking about uh, Judah, and, um, and by the way, uh, Judah meets a woman of the night. Well, it's actually his daughter-in-law, and um, he uh, doesn't recognize her. Um, and it says, well, because she had a, uh, a veil on and so, thinking she was a prostitute, he proceeded to have a relationship with her. And you can you can even have that discussion with a child. What you know? What does this mean? What is a prostitute? Here's a good one. Um, you know, most children are smart enough to realize that when people have sex, they uh, uh, tend to take their clothing off. So when he had a relationship with his prostitute, how come then he didn't say, "Oh my goodness, you're my daughter-in-law." Um, because you misunderstand the meaning of the phrase that she was wearing a veil. It doesn't mean then, while she was sitting at the uh, crossroads pretending to be a professional woman of the night. No, obviously not. That's not how you get business. Uh, no, it was pointing out that through just general modesty, uh, when she was married to Judah's son, during that period, whenever she was in the company of 
public people, including her father-in-law, she wore a veil then. So he never really got a really good look at her face. Naturally, now uh, he he sees her and he doesn't make the connection. He doesn't see her. So that, I mean, there's something else that, uh, again, it's good conversation because it doesn't have to be awkward. It's not you talking. It's God talking. All you have to do is share the the material. You can even ask questions. And, uh, you know, have your child say, what do you think? This is, you know, or, yeah, that's right, that's wrong, whatever it is. Uh, anyway, pretty soon after that, um, Judah has three sons. They're called Er, Onan, and Shelah. And Er gets married. Uh, Judah finds a bride for his son. Er is a wonderful woman, and we know she's a wonderful woman because she turns out, at, by the end of the story, she turns out to be the great-great-great-grandmother of King David, and you know what that means, right? That I mean, that's that's the beginning of the Messianic dynasty. I mean, it's amazing. And by the way, if you, if you, if you want, this is not, <laughs> this is definitely, this is not a Bible class, but, uh, but I'm, I'm suggesting the Bible has incredible value as a home education tool. And so, uh, on that last topic, you can always look at the last few verses of the book of Ruth, and you'll see the genealogies that link all this back to, uh, uh, to this incredible woman, uh, Tamar. So Tamar marries Judah's oldest son, and Judah's oldest son is a, uh, a selfish devil, and um, in order to bring children into the world, you've got to be very selfless. You've really got to be wanting to give. For as long as you're a taker, as long as you are saying to yourself, you know, all I, this is all about me, and if I have a child, I may not be able to go out without a babysitter, and we may not have be able to do vacations as easily. Uh, so then, fine, you're, you're still a very self-centered person, and you shouldn't have children. Or alternatively, you could, and you'll discover that, uh, with any luck, children help you come right on that. At any rate, Er died. God doesn't like selfish people, and Er is taken away. Uh, the um, the story then goes on that uh, Yehuda Judah arranges for Tamar to marry his next son, Onan. Why is that? Okay, this is called leveret marriage. Uh, the rule is that if a uh, a man died childless, uh, his wife is entitled to have a child from the brother, from the dead man's brother. Why is this? Well, it's a family obligation in a sense. And uh, I hate dealing with complex topics overly sh uh, briefly and concisely, but uh, I do want to at least give you an overview of what this leveret marriage is all about. And I think you'll see this is not nearly as primitive or as uh, crazy as you might think. And I'll, I'll do that just as soon as we get back. The website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, please make a point of visiting there. Uh, you might read up, if you like, on the resource I'm recommending, having a bearing on today's topic. It's called Hands Off, This May Be Love. And uh, the book makes a, a very compelling, cogent case for couples who are dating not to touch one another. Okay, or courting at any rate, um, because it can actually impact the the likelihood of a successful marriage. It also prevents you from uh, discerning whether 
the person you are currently dating or courting is the right person. All of that explained in the book. It's called uh, uh, Hands Off. This may be love. And uh, you will find it at our website at rabbidaniellappin.com. If you want to, you can also download it to your Kindle on Amazon. And, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's really a very good resource to have, uh, particularly if uh, either you or someone you love is in the situation of looking to get married, whether it's for the first or the second time. There is deep value to be gained from this book, Hands Off, This May Be Love either on Amazon through Kindle or at rabbidaniellappin.com. Be sure to write to us at rabbidaniellappin.com. Use the Contact Us tab, and uh, let's hear from you. Quick break. Back in just a moment. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Thanks so much for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, lest I forget during the course of the show, let me again thank those of you who help promote the show by encouraging other people to hear it, by making people aware of it. Thank you very much indeed. I appreciate it. And uh, and one way to do that, by the way, is just uh, tell people who visit my website because they can easily find the podcast on the website. So all of that easy to do, and I much appreciate you doing it. Uh, I said I would tell you about what's called leveret marriage in the Bible, and uh, I think you'll see that this is enormously applicable to conditions today just as it was 3,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago or 1,000 years ago. Uh, very little to change here. Uh, bottom line is, this is something I have tried with, um, certainly uh, over the years, I've probably asked 500 women this question. If you knew you were never going to be married, you were going to go through your whole life as a single woman, would you like to have a child or not? Leaving aside issues of stigma, leaving aside anything like that, if you are destined to go through life alone, either never having been married or even as a divorcee or a widow, uh, would you rather go through life totally alone or would you rather have one or two children, um, have had one or two children uh, that are a part of your life to whom you're close? And I can only tell you that uh, if I say conservatively, 99 out of 100 women say, look, I can't imagine going through life single, but if, if, I, if I had to, if that was the uh, stipulation you're describing, uh, I'd rather it was with a child. Easily 99 out of 100. And, the, and one of the practical real-life indications of that is that uh, I personally have uh, been peripherally involved with several single women who decided they were never going to get married and who decided to go ahead and, through artificial insemination, have a child anyways. Uh, in some cases artificial, I should mention, in other cases not. But um, uh, not so long ago, I got a call uh, on my radio show out of KSFO in San Francisco. Um, a woman called in and then asked if she could uh, talk to me during the break privately, and she identified herself as being a woman uh, who was in my long-ago synagogue and who actually did, and I, I was something I was very well aware of at the time, uh, went ahead and she told me how well her son is doing, and she's never been married, but she does have a son, and I understand it. I really understand it. 
there is no question that if you are going to be single uh, as a woman, you're better off having had a child or two than being single with never having had a child. And again, um, I, it probably didn't need three minutes of, of, of show uh, for me to tell you that. I'm sure that intuitively you recognize that to be the case. Um, now, the fact is, it is not that easy to get married today. It just isn't, right? And it never has been easier. It's always been a challenging thing to get married. There have been times in history where the culture has leaned towards marriage much more comfortably. The post-World War II generation, the 1950s, uh, late 40s, 50s, people got married. It was expected. You did. Uh, it was also, it's what provided uh, access to a fulfilling sex life. It was, it was everything, and people got married. Today it's a lot harder. There have been other times in history where it's very difficult. But uh, this much again I would tell you, that as hard as it is for a woman to find a great man, um, for a widow it's even harder. For a divorced lady it's even harder. It is hard. Uh, fortunately it happens. Fortunately it's, it's not even that rare. Uh, there are second marriages and it does happen. But... It's also not at all unusual for a widow to say to herself, am I, particularly, by the way, if she's a fairly young widow, she says, so am I destined to stay single for the rest of my life? Is that really what life has in store for me? And this is the nightmare scenario. How do I know it? Because I'm a rabbi and people talk to me. And uh, again, just from the sheer number of women who've said to me, is that what lies ahead? Have I got to settle down to the notion that I've, I've been married, I had a marriage, it didn't last as long as I would have hoped, but, uh, and here I am, am I going to be alone for the rest of my life? Okay, well, the question now is, if that is to be the case, is she better off with a child or without? Well, we've covered that already. If she's going to be better off with a child, um, should she have a child uh, through a relationship or through artificial insemination through a relationship no question about it uh, a relationship with who well ideally the late husband's brother ideally now uh, this isn't as uh, as odd and as uh, as almost creepy it can sound I spoke about on a show, if you're interested, you can go back to earlier shows. It's it's not that long ago. It's within the last uh, two years, I think. Um, I did a show about um, something happening, and it was happening then. I haven't followed up now, but former Vice President Joe Biden had two sons. Uh, both sons were married. One son sadly died of an illness, and um, the second son, as it turned out, uh, I separated or divorced from his wife, ended up having an affair or and possibly even marriage. I'm not sure how, what played out, but he ended up getting together with the widow of his late brother. So, uh, look, I'm not saying all of that's wonderful. I'm not saying that uh, this is all to be emulated. I'm not even saying that this is practical application for today. But I'm saying that what the Bible is talking about is providing a philosophical framework for these challenging circumstances in life that people do face. That's, that's all we're talking about. So uh, it, it would make perfect sense then for the widow to, to speak to her late husband's brother 
and say, look, I don't, I don't want to, I'm, I don't want to be married to you necessarily, but I do want a child. I wanted to have something of the genes of my late husband, and I would like. And the uh, brother would say, well, it's, you know, it's what the Bible commands. And so uh, uh, in, a, in a spirit of, of holiness and a spirit of um, uh, uh, maintaining um, my brother's name in the world, because the child will, will grow up with, as the son of my brother in a sense, uh, and into the sense of giving you a child, so you're part of the family. And that, by the way, is an important thing as well, because the fact is that when a woman gets married, uh, to a large extent, she throws in her lot with her husband's family. She's taken her husband's name. She might have been working in a family business with her husband. There are all kinds of things that make a woman's link to her husband's family even stronger than to her own, particularly if there's been many years of marriage. And uh, again, is that woman going to be more likely to be a part of family gatherings and Thanksgiving activities, etc., if she has a child who's the grandson of the parents, or is she going to be more part of that family if she has nothing? Again, not even a question. So it, it's pretty obvious. So for all of these reasons, uh, God arranged that in its purest sense, that is how it should work. Again, in real life, it doesn't necessarily work that way anymore, but, uh, but the concept is there. So back to our story. You're sitting with your, your son. You're covering the story. You're discussing Genesis chapter 38, and uh, uh, Judah's son Er dies, and now uh, Judah arranges for his son Onan to marry Tamar. Well, uh, what he does is he uh, consummates his marriage with her, and just before he uh, reaches the point where she might become impregnated, he withdraws, and in the language of the, uh, the verse, he spills the seed on the ground. Anyway, what's the idea? He doesn't want a kid either. This, this is a trait. He and his brother share that trait. Uh, Er didn't want it. Now, Onan didn't know that Er died because of this particular problem. God didn't broadcast that. But it's not a big shock to discover that Onan has the same problem. By the way, one of the uh, terms, one of the words for masturbation is Onanism, from this idea. And uh, if one one leaves it at that, one discovers that the uh, objection, apparently what God didn't like about Er, and God wasn't crazy about Onan either, he he did away with him too, was that uh, spilling seed on the ground. Well, yes, I mean, if you think about it, uh, what on earth could be more valuable than human seed? <laughs> Just in terms of sheer potential, right? So the idea of treating that seed respectfully and uh, having that seed always in, in, a, in a sacred place, if you like, uh, in the body of a woman, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I can hear that. that that's not a, a crazy idea. That, that's something that has within it the potential to be not just one great human being, but there's potential there for thousands of great human beings that you would want to treat that substance, that, that seed, with seriousness and respect. Yeah, I, I can hear that. That's, that's, not, that's not ridiculous. But that's not the only point. The real point is the selfishness that is thereby displayed. And that is how the verse ends. Uh, the, the, and that's the crucial part of the whole verse, 
that he didn't want to have a child. He didn't want to be a giver. He was a taker to have the pleasure of the relationship, but to give her a child, to give Tamar the child to which she's entitled, that he wasn't interested in. Uh, Onan's sin, like heirs, is the sin of being a taker and not a giver. And the Bible records and teaches us that we are created to be givers. How do we know? Well, there's lots and lots of places we know, but the very first one is God says, be fruitful and multiply, have children. Well, one of the best and most certain ways to learn how to be a giver is to become a parent. Because through the act of becoming a giver, through the act of having a child, you suddenly find that you are a giver. You get up with a child when the child has a, has a nightmare. You support the child. You take the child here, there, and everywhere for whatever it needs. And uh, you suddenly discover that giving is better than taking. You discover the joy of giving. And that's exactly what having a child um, teaches us. Uh, I'll try and I'll try and come back to an important point on that as well in in just a moment, having to do with the process that creates the child in the first place, the process of conception. Um, and I'll talk a little bit later as well about this, but that's where God gives us the beginning of the lesson. Not only does the um, the arrival of a child start teaching us the joy of being a giver, not a taker. But the very act of conception, the very act, is one in which the man desperately wants to be a giver, a giver of pleasure, not just a taker of pleasure. And that is, again, all part of the process of preparing for a child. Yeah, God created us that way, to, to thrill to the, to the power of giving as opposed to taking. Well, uh, this 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 need to give and this joy in giving is just built into our souls and that's one of the reasons why uh, many of us are more comfortable giving gifts than receiving gifts you know it's it's hard to sometimes receive a gift graciously you feel overwhelmed you feel you know people people often tell me uh, i i'm much happier giving gifts than receiving gifts and and this is why it is Uh, receiving charity What about receiving charity? And how about those people on welfare who are living on the generosity of their fellow citizens? What happens to them? Let me tell you about that coming right back in just a moment. The website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Head over there and um, uh, see. By the way, a lot of material on the topics I discuss on the show can be uh, delved into far more deeply. There's a lot of there's videos on the website. There's uh, more writing. There's a, there's audio stuff. Great deal of stuff to see. And you can also read about the resource I'm commending to your attention called um, Hands Off. This may be love. In other words, the idea that if you're uh, seeing a woman and there's a possibility of it becoming marriage, this is the one. Uh, this is real love. Don't ruin it by premature touch. And uh, the book's available on Amazon also in Kindle form, which is really great because you can have it literally um, before you go to bed tonight. So it's called Hands Off, This May Be Love. It's not by me. Susan and I commissioned it to be written by a brilliant woman called Gila Manelson. And we published the book Hands Off, This May Be Love. The website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Back with you in a moment. 
This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Pat Gray. There's no way anybody's ever asked Nancy Pelosi <laughs> what her favorite this and that is, let alone what her favorite Maybe word her is. grandchildren. Maybe, yes. His grandchildren Maybe will say, Grandpa, what's your favorite word? I don't know. The. <laughs> Uh, you're, you're a lot of fun with the, with the grandkids. The word. Yes. The word. Yes. The get word these kids out of here. I got yeah. work to do. Pat Gray. Weekdays from noon to 3 Eastern. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Here we go. Back with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And that's not because I'm clever. It's not because I'm smart. Uh, it is because I was privileged to be taught ancient Jewish wisdom from some of the very finest teachers of the 20th century. Remarkable, remarkable teachers. Um, I was going to say remarkable men, but there was actually uh, a woman or two as well. And um, all of them teachers that equip me with everything that I have. And it is my uh, sacred mission to make sure that this ancient Jewish wisdom, in all of its brilliant application to family, friendships, finance, faith, is accessible to you as well. And this show is part of the mechanism by means of which we make it accessible. The other part is through the books and audio programs available at our website. And I'll remind you of the website uh, before we're done. But um, uh, I was talking about how God created us to be givers, not takers, and that taking is incredibly corrosive to the human soul. Uh, that's why to receive charity has got to be like the very worst thing. The worst thing. It's so awful. And uh, and you would have thought, would you not, that those Americans who live on welfare, those Americans for whom welfare has become a way of life, those Americans uh, who literally live on the generosity of their fellow citizens, even if it is confiscated by the government in the form of taxation and redistributed um, in the form of entitlements, as they are now euphemistically called, you would have thought that those people would be the most grateful, patriotic Americans um, on, 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 in the entire country, would you not? doesn't work out that way. Receiving things, receiving things without giving anything in return uh, tends to have a bad impact on us. Just see what happens to people who won the lottery. You know, if somebody builds up a business, works for 20 years, builds a business, and then overnight becomes a millionaire because some big company buys his business, it's great. They're, usually everything's wonderful. He has a great life. But how about if people make that same millionaire status because they won the lottery overnight? Corrodes the soul. It generally has a bad impact on the life of that person. Usually they don't do well. And uh, there, uh, there are all kinds of magazine articles and stories of, about what happened to, to lottery winners. When you get something without being a giver, you just end up being a taker. It's just not good for your life. It just isn't. Now, uh, we, we're created to be givers. I mean, that's, that's the, the, the key thing that, that we have to wrap ourselves around. And we've got to know that nothing teaches us to be a giver better than becoming a parent. And uh, the, the, the idea is that we do very well doing things that are acts of giving. We don't do well 
when we do things that are primarily acts of taking. And there are pretty much only two activities that I can think of that a human being can do that does absolutely nothing for anybody else. Really? What happens if I buy an ice cream? Isn't that something that I'm doing it for me, not for anyone else? No, because the store that sold me the ice cream was very happy that I bought the ice cream. Absolutely. And uh, maybe even the dentist who uh, is going to repair my teeth, he may even be happy that I'm eating ice cream. I don't know about that for sure. But uh, eating ice cream is not an entirely selfish activity. There are two activities that are utterly and entirely selfish. Um, I've spoken in the past, uh, I'll tell you what they are, but first I'll tell you that uh, uh, when I first arrived in the United States of America, I kept on hearing the phrase men's room. You know, um, we'd be sitting uh, having a, a drink with a few guys, and then somebody would say, uh, I'm just going to the men's room. And to me, that conjured up this great room I wanted to go to as well. I was a bit shy, so I didn't say, me too, me too, can I go with you? But when I hear men's room, I hear big screen television, a comfortable couch, a barbecue sending out wonderful aroma of cooked beef. Uh, that's what a men's room is to me. And instead, I gradually discovered that the word men's room is like the word washroom or restroom or bathroom. They're all euphemisms for a room that is designed for only one function, and that is to relieve yourself. And I remember asking myself, why is it that a society that is so comfortable with public expression of so many private things, you know, the kind of things you hear uttered on television today, the things people talk about, the things comedians say, and people have to say, I'm going to the men's room? Why don't they just say, excuse me, I'm going to go empty my bowels? You'll pardon me, I'm not trying to be vulgar here, I'm, I'm asking a very real question. Uh, I, don't, I don't get this. We are open about every possible variation of sexual pleasure. We're open about everything, but people are not willing to say, um, excuse me, I, I have to go void my bowels. <laughs> really? Um, you need a restroom? It's so strange. Are we really that uncomfortable with bathroom functions? We must be, because as you know, you, and I'm sure like me, you over-decorate the smallest room in the house because you're trying to disguise its primary purpose. Would you like to come and use our powder room? With the greatest of pleasure. Sure, why not? Our powder room. It has monogrammed towels. It's got little bars of soap shaped like seashells. What's that all about, right? Because we're disguising its basic use. There's obviously a deep-seated discomfort with publicly acknowledging our need to relieve ourselves. Right? You, you want to go to the bathroom? Why? To take a bath? You need a shower? No. You're going to empty your bowels. But we never say that. You're going to relieve yourself. We don't say that either. You're going to the men's room. And that phrase, relieving yourself, I believe is a big clue to our squeamishness 
about what it is we're doing there. The fact remains that when we go and void our bowels, we are relieving ourselves enormously. But we're not relieving the world. We're not relieving society. We're not relieving world hunger. We're not doing anything. We're not doing a thing for anybody else, just for ourselves. So much so, by the way, that uh, the human excrement that we produce is not even as good as the manure produced by chickens, cows, and horses. Because that is really useful as a fertilizer. Uh, human excrement has to undergo really major treatment to remove pathogens and all kinds of problems before anyone dare uh, use it as an agricultural fertilizer. And people are, are pretty uneasy even about doing that. But um, the, the, the problem, I think, is that built as we are to be givers, doing something which is just so thoroughly useful to only us it bothers us on a very deep level and and that's why it is that uh, we acknowledge that you know we'd rather say I'm, I'm going to the john or we'd rather say if you're on a boat you're going to go to the heads right uh, because we don't actually say what it is we're doing there because in the final analysis it's it's a little bit on a deeply subconscious spiritual level it's a little uncomfortable to acknowledge that we're doing something so so uh, selfish so self-centered so useless to anybody else almost everything i do from morning to night and you all of us most everything we do has use for and value to other people right you're engaged with other people all the time, but when you're in the bathroom, just for yourself. And so that leaves us, we don't like talking about it. Um, that is why it is, by the way, that uh, you can also show your child, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 13, uh, the Israelite soldier is required to, even in the middle of battle, he has to bury his excrement. In other words, he has to relieve himself, goes to the bathroom in the field, listen to me, uh, he must stop, use a shovel, and cover it up. Why? Right? It's, it's not for sanitation reasons or health reasons or any biological or, f uh, or physical reasons because this could be a battlefield in the desert far away. You know, move on. It's not a problem. No. Leaving our excrement in plain view is demoralizing. Why? Because it reminds us of a selfishness it, rem it it distracts us from the selflessness of our better natures i said there were two activities that i could think of that uh, bring no value or benefit to anyone else the other one is masturbation that is the only other activity i can think of that brings no benefit to anyone else look think about this um i think most people uh, would be reasonably comfortable saying to some, like you know say somebody's coming to pick me up i'd say look do me a favor pick me up sometime after eight because i've still got a shower i got a shave i got to get dressed okay I, I, I could see myself saying that right but nobody would say to somebody hey listen i'm not yet ready uh pick me up a little bit later because i still have to empty my bowels and masturbate Pardon me, again, I, I'm not deliberately being vulgar here, but I am trying to make a very important point, and that is that our souls reject the idea of doing things that bring zero benefit to other human beings. And that's why we're okay saying, I, I can't come now, I've got to shower, I shave, I've got to get dressed, because those activities we recognize benefit the people we interact with all day, right? They're happy you showered, and you shave, you're, you're a little nicer to look at, and you're going to get dressed, well, that's nice, you dress nicely, that's all good for other people. That's right. 
but uh, I'm going to empty my bowels and mess No, I don't think so, right? Because you're not proud of those things. You're not doing them for anybody else. And so um, there it is. Uh, there's something about it which is just plain selfish. Um, there's another area in which we can clarify that God created us to be givers, not takers. And, um, and that is specifically in the sexual arena. Uh, and I don't think it is outside the ability of a teenager to understand these points. Uh, as long as it's explained sensitively and with an open Bible in front of parent and child. In other words, you're reading it out of the Bible. And uh, where I'm suggesting you look at is De Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5. What's going on there is that it's talking about uh, right after a couple gets married, and it speaks about the man's obligation um, to bring pleasure to his wife. Now, I checked the King James translation, by the way, and uh, it's, it's, it's accurate in a very quaint kind of a way. The King James translation actually says, and the husband should cheer his wife. In other words, using it as a verb. So it's a little quaint. It's not the way we speak today. But this is an obligation on the Israelite husband to bring his wife sexual satisfaction, to bring her marital ecstasy. It's as simple as that. And that is, it, it's so fundamental and so important that a husband's own enjoyment of his sexual relationship with his wife, how shall I put this, um, it's, it's inextricably tied up with the joy he brings to her. Right? And again, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that most people are reasonably comfortable with what I'm describing. Uh, the husband's pleasure is, is really dramatically enhanced by knowing that he has brought joy to his wife. So much so, this is such a real phenomenon, that again, I'm, I'm not telling you anything you don't know if I tell you that some women occasionally fake that joy they feel so as not to deprive their husbands of that deep pleasure of bringing their wives pleasure. This is part of what it's all. Remember I said a little bit earlier that part of the preparation for children, children help us learn how to be givers. Well, part of the preparation is that in the conception of a child, men learn the joy of giving pleasure to somebody else. And so that's, that's really all part of the same conversation. And so the idea is that... Um, we uh, that men are are intended to be givers uh we can't help but void our bowels periodically for good health but we can help masturbating that is possible and the similarity between these two bodily activities and I mean, obviously many differences but the similarity is that they both bring no joy to anybody else at all and we are people that are created to bring joy to others. That is the concept. And again, there's obviously so much more, but within the constraints of a, uh, a, reasonably, um, a reasonably short uh, podcast, uh, I think this at least gives us the beginning of an approach. And uh, while it may seem 
to uh, to many that the topics are awkward when you're actually reading them out of the text and you're tackling them together and you're saying to your child so what could this mean what do you think this means or you know let me tell you <laughs> what my rabbi told me it means however you want to put it but uh, it makes a potentially very awkward circumstance into something that is only slightly awkward and maybe not even awkward at all it doesn't even have to be um you know, I, I think, and my experience is that children are, are very able to understand this and are happy to hear it in a way that it's not their parents. You know, they don't feel a need to roll their eyes at this because it's coming from the book, not coming from their parents. And I think it's also a very refreshing change from many of the superstitious reasons that uh, people hear about masturbation, uh, the fire and brimstone approach to it, you know, all of those things, well, whatever. But uh, but there's something really very real about it, and, and one can see it right there in those verses I was telling you about uh, back in um, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 23, all about Judah and his sons. A lot of great information there, and I hope it's useful to you. Uh, the book that I um, am recommending you take a look at is called um, hands off this may be love by the way I should tell you Susan Lapp and my wife came up with that title we published the book it was written by a very bright woman called Gila Mandelson lovely person she lives in Israel in Jerusalem and we asked her to write this book for our audience let me go, uh, hands off this may be love you know the idea is that if if you're with somebody who just might be the right woman for you and uh, and and oh, but for that matter, if you're uh, if you're the woman, you're with a guy, and you this just may be the right one. Do yourselves a favor, and for the reasons laid out in this book, in a very persuasive kind of a way, very rational way, uh, do yourselves a favor and uh, postpone the enormous impact of physical touch for as long as you possibly can. Uh, the book is called Hands Off. This may be love. And uh, you can download it immediately on Amazon or uh, Kindle. And you can also get it on our website at rabbidaniellappin.com. And I urge you to visit our website anyway, because I love hearing from you. Uh, I love comments. I love questions and uh, any communication at all. Because one of the drawbacks of this podcast over terrestrial radio, which I love doing, is uh, call-in radio is great because you're talking to people. There's give and take. There's conversation. And not only is it um, uh, is it harder to do this way, but I'm I'm quite sure it's it's not as easy for you to listen to to hear one person talking all the time instead of a conversation. So um, when I do get uh, comments from you on our website, I, uh, ver I value it very much indeed. And as you can see on the website, you'll see I answer many of them, if not all of them as well. So that's as far as we go, my friends. Thank you very much for being part of the show. Thank you for uh, promoting the show, uh, encouraging other people to be part of it. And I wish you a week of good health and prosperity. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, your rabbi. God bless. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio.